Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome. Praise the Lord. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll continue our study of the, I would call it the impossible commands of Lord Jesus Christ to the followers. And I want you, before we pray, I want you to kind of settle in chapter 5. And we start in verses 17, and then we read verse 20, and we'll go to our passage 43. So please read with me, carefully thinking through, and let the word sink into your heart. Jesus is saying, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 20, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes, and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Our passage, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we pray to you, may you enable us to understand the words of Jesus. May you work on our hearts to follow Jesus. May you change us into perfection of what you're speaking here. For your namesake, by the grace of God, amen. I entitled my sermon, Love Like Your Father, with the subtitle, Loving and Praying for Your Enemies. Loving and Praying for Your Enemies. You see, Jesus is calling us to follow him. Jesus is calling us to follow him and where he goes, and Jesus going on the cross. Before us, the most radical teaching of Jesus, the most radical teaching in the world, to love and to pray for your personal enemies. You know, the best world this world can offer is to love and pray for your neighbor. That is the best. And when we're talking about loving and praying for the enemies, for the people who hurt you, people who abuse you, people who selfishly misuse you. The only possible explanation how in the world can be done, it has to be come supernaturally for us. You have to be the child of God. There is no other way, there's no other possibility, there's no other, other possible ways that you can do this command. And this is what throughout Jesus is teaching. Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 will either crush you, which is supposed to, because at some point you would say, I am not that, and I cannot do that. It is impossible for me to do that. And you lean to Christ. Or you could say, because Christ has fulfilled for me, and now I am the child of God, and I have the supernatural ability to do what he says. Now, there's only one, there's only one possible explanation for us is to have the supernatural ability to react to people who hurt us with blessings and love. Don't you think? This is Christianity 101. This is not some upscale Christianity when you say, you know what, I'm loving my neighbor. I'm on this level of spirituality right now. And maybe someday I will reach to perfection when I will love my neighbor and my enemy. It's not the the spirituality 
you know, 1,000. It's 101 basic teaching of Jesus. He said, if you are the child of God, you will be able to do so. This is what I want you to see from the text, this statement, by loving our enemies and praying for them, we are proving, we're not becoming, we're proving that we're the children of the Heavenly Father. By be able to love and to pray for people who hurt you, we are proving that we're children of the Heavenly Father. I like how John Stott wrote it about this. And he said, the life of the old fallen humanity is based on rough justice, avenging injuries, and returning favors. This is us in old flesh. That's the best we could do. We could have the rough justice, we could avenge injuries, and we could return favors. But the life of the new, redeemed humanity is based on divine love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. Man, that's good. And if you're a child of God, that appeals to you. And you say, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to be like my father. And I want to express my love like my father does to this world and to me. I want us to study this text under the headings of four motivations. Why would we love our neighbors? Why would we love our enemies? Why would we pray for them? There are four motivations from this text that Jesus is cultivating our heart and to say, it's not an obligation, it's not a burden. I just want to work on your heart so that you would want to do so. The law is done, I complete it, I accomplish it, I fulfilled it. It's no longer obligation of the law, but this is the cultivation of the spirit inside of you so that you would want to do that. And these are four motivations. Number one, we're motivated to love our enemies and to do this impossible command because of our Savior's command. Number two, because of our Father's character. This is what he does. Number three, because of our heavenly reward. And number four, because of our glorious destiny. Now, number one, Jesus is saying here, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This verse, you have heard that it was said, Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you something that you have not heard yet. You have heard that it was said. And Jesus is saying, look, my command is coming to you. It it is bringing some change. It's some change, obvious change into your lives and some change how you supposed to treat people around you. Now, there is obvious change because Jesus introduces this word, but. He said, you have heard what he said, but I tell you. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that this is the sixth block that we're studying. And Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said to the ancient six times. This is the sixth time. And he's not just taken on the thin air. He's taken these statements. Where? From where? From the Old Testament. These are Old Testament sayings. They are grounded in Old Testament scripture. Now, of course, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they misrepresent that, but the main distinction and the change is between the old and the new. Because God is dealing with the Israel previously in the Old Testament in one way, and now he's dealing different. And Jesus said, I say to you, now you have to act differently. Now, these statements, almost all of them taken from Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23. And they are representing how Israel is supposed to treat people around them. And it is true that Old Testament and the continuity of Old Testament, it's exactly the same in the aspect of personal revenge. You should never, ever in Old Testament or New Testament take personal revenge. Romans chapter 12, Paul is alluding to Deuteronomy, and he says, do not avenge yourself, dear friends, but give place of God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. There's never allowed a personal revenge in Old Testament. 
Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, you shall not take revenge, but bear or bear any grudges against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, in fact, personally, if you would see your, your neighbor who perhaps became your enemy in Israel, like let's say that his donkey went into your backyard and just trashed all your tomatoes and, and all of the cucumbers. And this donkey then ran away. And you happen to find this donkey in the field. According to Deuteronomy, you should take this donkey, bring it to your enemy, and not, and not giving them any revenge, but give them what he's his. And if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, you should actually feed him. And if he's thirsty, you should actually give him water. That was the requirements of the law towards Israel and your personal enemies. But let's be honest. You know, sometimes we as preachers, New Testament preachers, we try to avoid the hard sayings of Old Testament we're trying to picture and present God a little bit better than, you know, he is in the scripture. We try to improve on the character of God, improve on the things that God said, or just skip them. Now, for instance, how in the world, in Old Testament, it is says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 2 to 6, concerning Ammonites and Moabites. Hear this. It is the law. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of these descendants, even to the 10th generation. So if you become a Moabite or you're born as a Moabite or, or uh, Ammonite, you, you have no chances to be in Israel. There's no chances to have special graces of Israel. Because they did not meet you with the food or water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they have heard against you, they have hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Therefore, the Lord your God, nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. But here's the kicker. It says, you shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. That is God's word. You shall never seek peace, meaning that they are your enemies forever. And what about these sayings by our beloved David, who is reflecting the heart of God, we believe, in Psalm 139, verses 19 to 22, and he said, Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, he said? O oh Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. What do you do with these texts? If you just dismiss and say, well, Old Testament never said anything about hating your enemies, then you, what do you do with these texts? And what about 1 Samuel 15 verse 3, 1 God, the first assignment to Saul, he said this, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh, he did just that. He spared just donkeys and, and camels, but he had no problem with that. But how come? Now, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And I'm not going to explain you the whole deal about it, how, but the point is that there's a change from Old Testament treatment of your enemies to New Testament. Even, even though the same thing that you should never do it out of your personal revenge, there is some kind of enmity to the Israelite enemies. And the only possible explanation that God does not change from the Old Testament to New Testament and I don't have to improve on the character of God or I don't have to defend his character. And say, so, well, you know what? He, he didn't mean it. He did mean it. He meant it. And even though God didn't change, something did. The way how God treat people in Old Testament was quite different 
And it's because there was a purpose. God created Israel for a purpose. God created Israel. God chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to create Israel out of them. You know why? So out of Israel, the Savior would come. There would be a horrible misrepresentation of God if he would spare the nations before but would never produce the Savior. That would be the the most horrible thing that would happen to us. And God, being faithful to his purpose, he chose Israel, gave them the law of love to protect them from the sin, idolatries, so that they would be holy. So out of them, salvation comes to the whole world. And when that happened, the all things has passed. When that happened, all these regulations about striking and hitting your kids with rocks, if they raise hand on the parents, are gone. Every type of crusade for the God's name, every type of hatred for God's name is gone. There's no more place for that. You know how people misunderstood and when crusaders in the Middle Ages to reach out the new lands and to bring people to Christ, having vengeance for God's sake. Jesus said, look, look at me. I am the one that the whole law is speaking about. The whole law was protecting so that I would come to the scenes of the world. And now since I'm here, there's a change. And that's why Jesus is saying, you have heard what it says, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. Not personal enemy, but corporate. But I say to you, the time has changed. Now the purposes of God accomplished. I arrived and now salvation is from the Jews, but also for all the world. Christ is saying, since my father brought me into this world, I fulfilled the requirements of the law. I have the punishment of the law. And therefore there is no more killing, no more carrying out vengeance for God. From now on, you go and proclaim the goodness of God and grace. We are carrying out the messages of God's grace. And therefore, when we see the enemies and they do not know God, our responsibility to preach the gospel to them. There's a great contrast, do you see? And Jesus is saying, look, I'm calling you to, to, to love because... I'm not only saying this, not only fulfilling the whole punishment of the law, but also did this. He gives us a command, a clear command, and it's just twofold. He said, well, of course you understand that you need to love your neighbor as if it's not hard enough, right? We're having problem loving our neighbors, right? We're having problem honestly loving our kids sometimes. Our wives sometimes, and our wives turned into enemies sometimes. Don't, don't you have that? And like in a second, they disagree with you, and you have the enmity. As if it's not hard enough, Jesus is saying, look, we're talking about completely different level. Shoot much, much higher. We try to figure out who is our neighbor today. You know, whether I should help this person or not. Maybe he's my neighbor, maybe he's not. And Jesus is saying, look, this is clearly explained. I could explain it at other time, who is your neighbor, but I'm talking about love your enemies. Have kindness to those who are hostile to you. It is more than just blind obedience, he's asking. He said, well, just do it with the gnashing of your teeth. I don't want to do it. I hate to do it. I hate those people. But since Jesus said, I will do it. No, no, he's cultivating the obedience out of the heart of love. Who are these enemies that he's talking about? He's talking, a, and he's like assuming, Jesus assuming that we will have enemies. It's not like he's saying, maybe, perhaps sometimes in your life you will have enemies. No, he said, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of me, you will have enemies. Not one, plural, many. You will have personal enemies who will personally attack you, who will harm you, who will speak evil against you. You know, sometimes these are not some strange people who are just, you know, shouting on the street. These are our people. These are Nice people. 
these are people who hurt us sometimes without even thinking because they don't like something about us. And we should expect that we have enemies, don't you? Because if, he, if Jesus is saying, woe to you if when all people speak well about you. If you have no enemies, you don't have righteousness whatsoever. You don't have godliness. You're not, if you never offend anyone because of Christ, because of righteous sayings, because of the truth, maybe you're not saying it. If you're friend to everyone and everybody likes you, and this is the desire of the world, just being just at peace with everyone, maybe you're not godly at all. But Jesus saying, look, you will have enemies. There will be many that will hate you because of me. And blessed are you when they insult you. Our text defines enemy as those who persecute us. Are those who are not just saying somewhere on the Facebook about us. They're personally attacking you and they could come to you and poke you in the eye. And they just strike you. They threaten in your life. Those are the enemies that we're talking about. You know, it's interesting. G.K. Chesterton, he's a British theologian in early 1900s, he said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people often. But Ken Hughes put this way beautifully. He said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But return good for evil is divine. That is true. To love our enemies is divine. To pray for our enemies and seek their best blessings of, for our persecutors, it's supremely divine. This is an amazing teaching that the person on the street would never understand it or would agree with it. And he would scream, he says, this is injustice. This is injustice. If someone hurt me, I have to hurt him. That's how we operate in this world. But this is not the kingdom of God. This is not the citizenship of Christ. Jesus commands us to love without limit. Everyone, regardless, whoever, whatever they do to us, it is revolutionary for our culture, revolutionary for us, but it is norm for Christianity. This is one-on-one. Jesus commands this to us. And he motivates us to follow his example. He said, not only that you love them and don't do anything to them, but you also do something to them, you pray for them. You know, I want you to try sometimes when you have an enmity in your heart, just to pray for that person and immediately you'll see you cannot do both. You cannot pray for their blessings and then hate them. It's just impossible. They don't coexist. Prayer for those who persecute you. But brothers and sisters, if you don't pray for those who you love, if you don't pray for your wife that you love, for your children that you love, for your neighbor that you love, do you think that you have an ability and practice to Pray for those who hurt you. You know, years back, I had this vivid illustration in my life, my wife's life too, that we had two kids and they were just six and two. And there's my old boss came in raging with his friend, you know, flashing his gun and hitting me right on my front yard. And I was scared. I was scared. And I couldn't do anything. My wife just started yelling and say, well, we're gonna call police finally. They left and we came out at our home with our kids and we think we do not know what's gonna happen. They're demanding some money, threatened to beat us up. And I come and I said, well, I'm gonna call my dad. And I call my dad and I said, well, dad, you know, what should I do? Like, this is scary. And he said, well, you know what to do. Jesus told us what to do. You go and pray for them. I said, okay, and we, we gather our kids and we stand on our knees and we start praying for them. And immediately the atmosphere changed. The fear is gone. And now we're praying for them that I would know the love of Jesus. You know, the Scottish reformer, George Wishart, lived in early 1500s. He was a contemporary of John Knox. 
He helped a lot of people, not just by preaching the word, but also going to the house of house who were sick with plague, blood plague. And many people he ministered to with the gospel and just wasn't afraid to be again sick. And finally, the persecution of the Catholic Church got up to him and he was sentenced to death by burning at the stake. And so he was standing there at the stake and the executioner who knew him personally and who saw that he helped many, many people in his life, he was hesitant. He was kind of very... apologetic about this, to throw the torch. And when he saw that, George Wishart saw that, and he stepped out, and he come to this executioner and went over and kissed him on the cheek, saying, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. And he went up to stand at the stake. That's what the love of God requires us to do. That is what Jesus communicates to us. And so this is my commandment to you. And this is, I did it. It's not just I, I required for you to do it. I did it. The first reason to attempt the impossible command to love and to pray of our enemies because Christ, our savior, said so to us. And he said, there's a change. And I did it. Follow my example. Now, by, do, by doing this, we're proving that we are children of God, aren't we? I mean, what would be the most obvious distinction with this world? That you would be able to love those who hurt you. The motivation number two, because of our father's character. When we look at our father, and, and Jesus is mentioning this here in verse 44. He said, so that ye may be Sons of father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. You see, our identity, when we identify ourselves, who are you? Are you a sufferer for your own sake or you are a child of God? It is clear. He said here, the motivation starts with so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You understand who your father is. Your father is great, and your father is generous, not only to you, but everyone else. Now, notice motivation is not that you may become the sons. He's not saying to us, look, by suffering for my sake, maybe if you do it well enough, you're going to get into my sonship. Maybe I'll accept you. Maybe this is the level. And that's how people think. If I just have to try my best, maybe God will accept. The point here is that you're accepted and you're already a son. And that you're proving that you're the son because you're following your father's character. You know, naturally, no one would love anyone else except self. But because we're children of God, the passage is pursuing our heart and saying, look, you are, you are different kind of sons. You're different kind of people reflecting father character because you're attracted to father. Your father is so good. Your father is so great. You know, it's, a, it's like you would say to your child, say, well, remember your last name, right? Like I was speaking to my daughter and I was appealing to her and said, well, look, you should not do this because that's not what Kislitsa do. You know, we, we don't do this. You have to protect your last name. It, you know, it's, it's, it's known, right? We shouldn't trash it. This is my father's name, and this is his father's name, and his father's name. So remember who you are. And when God is telling us, remember who you are. You are my son. I'm appealing to you, reflect my character. You can see the change in the relationship between a between person who do not know God as a father. I don't know if you experienced that or if you noticed that. When you work with a non-believer and they hear them pray, they, they address God as God. They tell him God, sometimes call him the Almighty, and most often call him them Lord. And they could pray like this, Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for protection. Lord, I thank you for this food. But when a person gets saved, he started calling him father. He said, 
Father, I thank you. Father, I bless your name. Now, who are you? Love your enemies like your father loves. You see, the great secret in life, how we address our enemies, is not of how much they did wrong to you, but who are you in father's eyes? That's the greatest secret. You are the son and the daughter of the Most High who loved you much. It's not how enemies treat you. It is how your father treats you. That's the secret. And when we look at this father, we see that this father is so generous. I mean, there's, there's generosity of, of God, you know, brings to the explosion of my, my mind. It just explodes with the gratitude. Look at the abundance of, of care of the father. He said he, he causes sun to rise and sends rain. Everything that you really need, he gives. And the second thing, not only everything that you need, he gives, he gives to everyone. To everyone without discrimination, this impartial generosity of God. God sends sun and the rain on both categories, on good and evil. Now, sometimes, right, we think otherwise. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I look at my beautiful backyard and I see sunshine it's just shining right on my parcel, right? Next to me, there's Mormon who live, and there's no sun over there. There's just darkness, complete darkness, right? And when the rain comes, it comes only on my tomatoes. And on a Mormon's tomatoes, it doesn't rain. Is that so? Father said, no. There's no distinction in this common grace, common generous grace, impartially, you know, this is attracting to God, of, of, of God. This is what attracts us. We have to think about God as a creator who generous to everyone. One of my favorite songs in Old Testament 145, Psalm 145. As we read this, I want you to think what attracts you to God. What causes you to praise him? Because he starts it in verse 1 and 3. He says, I will exalt you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And you have to pause and ask a question. What is so great about God? When you pray and praise God, are you praising him for the almighty acts? Or you're praising him that he's um, omnipotent? Are you praising him that he's so just? Most often, you know what we were praising him? For his mercy. And he explains in 145 verse 8 and 9, he says, this is the greatness of our Lord. This is what's so great. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all. All that he has made. The love is supersede the norm. The love that reaches out beyond God's kingdom, beyond the borders of God's kingdom, beyond the borders of those who deserve to those who do not. And you know what it does, generosity of God often? It reaches out to the hearts of men and turns the enemies into friends. Try that. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't hate sinners. He does. God just, he, he's not just hating their sin. God hates sinners. It says in Psalm 5, 5, it says that you hate all evildoers. Notice it's not their sin. It's them that he hates. But yet he does love them. You know why he loves them? Because he created them. He created them for the higher purpose. 
This is a much higher purpose than just to live and eat and die. God created man. You know why? Because he created them in his image to reflect his character. And that is why when God is looking at these people to his original design, God never designed people to go to hell. God designed people to glorify his name. God designed people to reflect him in the best way. And yes, it is true that we are like the broken mirror that is shattered. And if you just break the mirror and just shatter everywhere, you could see your reflection, but it's all mixed and it's all corrupt and it's not true, true reflection of you, but yet it is the reflection. And so every human being was created for the higher destiny to reflect God in his image. That is why James is telling us, do not curse people because they are created in the image of God and may in the likeness of God. This is our motivation. When we look at the generosity of God, why would God be generous to sinners? Well, because he created them for a higher purpose, to reflect him. The generosity of God drives us and cultivates this heart that when those people who are outside of God's grace personally insult us and hurt us and hurt us feel our feelings, that we be able to reflect God's character because we are his children. The point number three, because of your heavenly reward. That's a cultivation. Why would we want to live, do good to people who do bad to us? Well, because it is divine and it has a reward. In a natural human reaction, knee-jerk reaction, when somebody cuts you off on freeway, what do you do naturally? You wanted to wish worse to them. You're not praying for them immediately. I hope you do. When somebody slap you on the cheek, you would say, well, I'm not on that level of Christianity yet, so let me slap you back. But Jesus is saying in here, in verse 46 and 47, he said, for if you love those who love you, well, what reward do you have? What reward are you looking at your personal relationship with people? What, you, what reward? And you get a reward for sure, one way or another. Just one reward is temporal, another is eternal. And he said, look, if you love those who love you, your spirituality, it's not just didn't grow, your spirituality on the level of the tax collectors. Congratulations, you arrive at the lowest level of spirituality, tax collectors. And if you're only greeting your brothers as you're going to stand up today and you greet those who like you, well, there's nothing special about that. And you receive greeting in a ba bag because that's your reward. That's your reward. It's like if I would tell to my wife at the end of the day and say, well, Wifey, look, I did an incredible thing today. I went to work, and I came back. Can I have a special treatment? And she will say, look, ah, you just did what you're supposed to do, man. You know, there's nothing special about this. This is a norm. This is a norm of huma humanity to, to greet those who greet you, right? This is a kind of normal respect. But Jesus said, "Rive, higher. When they don't greet you, you go out of your way to greet them. You see, what reward would you have? And what Jesus is saying is that this reward would cost you. It would cost you. You know, we have this in, in sport, the saying, no pain, no gain. You'd have no sweating, you, you know, people thinking that, hey, I'm just going to do a little, little trick exercise and then I'm going to lose 20 pounds. It, it's not working this way. It doesn't work. You're not gaining muscle, so no pain, no gain. The same thing, if you don't suffer, you don't have reward. Jesus is an ultimate example. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We read in the beginning of the service how Jesus was praying for his enemies. 
Now he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This phrase, it says, and Jesus was saying, it's an imperfect tense, meaning that he was kept saying this. It was not just the one word at the end of the crucifixion when they crucified and Jesus said, well, just after that, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Throughout the crucifixion, throughout when they were striking him, when they were spitting on him, he kept praying. When the iron spikes being driven into his hands and into his feet, he kept praying this. And this cruel crucifixion and torture didn't stop Jesus for praying for their enemies. They didn't silence him. And you know what reward Jesus had? In Acts 2, verse 23, Peter was reaping the reward at the day of the Pentecost. Peter said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of the godless man and put him to death. You know what happened? They were pierced to their hearts and the heaven reaped the reward of Jesus' sufferings. What is your reward? Are you motivated to see not immediate reward, greeting and honor of people and avoiding the pain and shame or you're looking farther and higher that you see their enemies, the possibility that they will become your friends. You know, imagine that you have a contention with your, let's say, neighbor about the parking space next to your house, and you have the disagreements, and there's an enmity, and at the end of the day, you won the argument, and you won the parking space. Great. That's your reward. And you just forfeit the opportunity to reach him out with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he become your friend and the friend of God. What reward are you aiming? What reward motivates you to go extra mile? And the lastly, he said, look, this is what normal people do, but you are not people of this world. You are having a new nature and you are destined for higher purposes. The fourth motivation, it's often misunderstood. I, I read a lot of commentaries on this verse throughout my ministry. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's a lot of ink spilled and there's a lot of sweat you see that people are sweating trying to explain what this is. But it simply says you ought to be perfect. You ought to be perfect. And people try to minimize it. Perfect doesn't mean perfect. It means just a little bit more maturity and stuff. You know what it says? It says perfect. And if you want to reflect the deity of God, there's a one sure way to do so. If you want to be like God, truly like God, you ought to love like him. That's the perfection he's talking about. You know, that's why Jesus is saying, but love your enemies. He didn't jump from just going through the ritual things and now be perfect. He is tying up the love of the enemies, the highest love that possible be reflecting the character of God. And he said, this is the perfection. No wonder when Luke is recording the similar discourse now, Jesus didn't preach just one one-time message, Sermon on the Mount, and he just left. He trinkled and sprinkled all of these uh, teachings throughout his ministry. But in Luke, when he preaches the similar message, you know what word he substituted for perfection? He could go there and mark it. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, 36. He says, but love your enemies and do good. And land, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Do you see the familiarity of the text? And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then he said, be merciful, 
even as your Father is merciful. See, we often think about perfection is not sinning, not doing something. Jesus is saying, shoot higher. The perfection of God that you see and experience is that he loved the offender and the enemy. If you want to be like God, you have to show mercy like God. Now, this is not the way how we impress God. That's not what he's saying. As I said in the beginning of the sermon, you're either going to be crushed by this teaching of Jesus saying, I'm not able, or you come to Jesus and you say, well, you able me. You enable me to do so. You're not talking about every part of your life just being just perfectly aligned to God's will, for we know that it's impossible. But we're talking about reflecting the perfect God and perfect love of God. And be kind to those who are not kind to you. You know why is it possible? Because Christ saved us. He changed our nature. Romans 8 reveals something. It says, therefore, now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he said, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order, Jesus accomplished the old law and was condemned by the law in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's a passive state. It's a passive tense when it says that not you will be fulfilling the law, but it might be fulfilled in you. And now, the way to understand that is now we walk according to the, not to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The way to understand that you are the field of God's love. And you were the field worthless, producing nothing. If there would be the law to the field to produce good fruit, you would be not able. Why? Because it's full of rocks, thorn and thistles, and poison. And then when God goes on and cultivates this ground and takes all the rocks and cleans it up and cleans all the toxin away and fertilize it and, and make it cultivated and put the seed in, now it produces something. But we have to understand this is the work of God in us. Christ has fulfilled the law and earned to be the son of God. We are reflecting and we are the field in which the law works. This love actually possible. This perfection, reflection of perfect character of God is, is possible. And this becomes our aspiration. You know, what would you want to be like? Do you want to be sparkling, sinless vessel of God? Or do you want to be full of love of God? That when people see you and they say, well, here come sinless person. Or they could say, here come a loving person. Reflection of God's character. That it becomes our aspiration. We want to be like God. Don't you? I want to be like him. In every aspect. But especially in the way how he treated sinners. We forget often. But I want to end with this application for us. You will have enemies. And you do have enemies. Sometimes this enemy is your friend. But if we do these and follow this, applying in a personal life, when you have these enmities, intercede and pray for your enemies. Just immediately go into the room of your mental closet and block this offense by readdressing it to the Father and you pray for their blessings 
for their highest blessing. Don't pray for their car and for their house. Pray for their soul. Seek their forgiveness before Jesus. Number two, seek the blessing in your heart for your enemies. Check your heart. When you imagine your person right now in your mind, the person who is not nice to you, what do you feel? What do you wish for that person? And number three, don't just do that. Go out of your way. Go meet him. Go greet him. Go an extra mile. Go out of your way helping those who do not help you. The life of old fallen humanity is based on rough justice, avenging injuries, and returning favors. We're not like that. The life of new, redeemed humanity is based on divine love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your teaching. Thank you for reaching out to us when we were enemies. God demonstrated his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God, through Christ, reconciled the world to himself. And now we have this ministry of reconciliation. Oh, I pray that we reflect you. Thank you, Father, that when we fail, we're still your children. You never disown us, but you just cultivate this motivation so that we reflect you in the essence who you are. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.